Hi, this is Pastor Curtis. I want to thank you for checking out the Family Church Podcast. I hope it encourages you and inspires you to take your next step of faith. You can find out more about how to do that at our website, familychurch.xyz. And if you know a friend who needs to hear this message, please forward it on to them. I hope you enjoy the message. Hey, I got a question for you. What emotion do you struggle with most anytime you're faced with a difficult situation or particularly challenging uh, circumstance? When the storms of life hit, what feeling, what mindset, what actions do you default to? Uh, anger, fear, surprise, contempt, disgust, sadness, all of the above? Look, I know our, our emotions are triggered by numerous things, but I also know that we're creatures of habit. And when certain things happen, we respond certain ways. So that's what I want to talk about this morning as we continue our series titled New Normal. And we're looking at what life should look like for us as we adjust and adapt to our new normal moving forward through and hopefully past this pandemic. And our theme verse for this series is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole, and then here's, our, here's the points for our emphasis in this series and why it's three weeks. May your whole spirit, we looked at that last week, soul, which is what we're looking at this morning, and body, which is what we'll talk about next week, the Lord willing, be kept blameless. And one translation says, keep you fit for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're doing in this series. We're seeing how we can stay fit spiritually, emotionally, and even physically. Now, the word soul can mean different things to different people, but probably the simplest definition of our soul is our mind, what we, what we think, our will, which is what we do, the decisions we make and what we do, and then our emotions, which is how we feel. But our emotions are usually what triggers those other two. And our emotions are defined as a natural, instinctive state of mind deriving from one's circumstances, mood, or, and it's this next word that I want you to follow away because we're going to come back to it, relationships with others. Isn't that interesting? So basically, our emotions are triggered by circumstances, which in turn impact our thinking, which in turn impacts our actions. And these emotions, that they tend to progress through three stages. The first one is shock. Some type of unexpected, didn't see it coming event that, that in some cases was so traumatic that it actually make, made you physically sick. In fact, has that ever happened to anyone? Something happened, you, you felt like, man, I felt sick to my stomach. Yeah. You ever had something happen that was so traumatic that it just, man, it just came out of left field, you didn't see it coming, and man, it was just devastating to you. Maybe it was the passing of a friend or loved one, perhaps a call in the middle of the night from a law enforcement officer. Maybe it was a call from the doctor's office saying you need to make an appointment with the oncologist. You know, even though we just passed the one-year anniversary of when COVID changed life as we know it, I still distinctly remember watching the evening news one night early on in this whole thing and telling Sue, and I can't believe this is actually happening. I can't believe this is, you know, they actually canceled the NCAA tournament. They, they canceled Major League Baseball. There's no toilet paper on the shelves. Are you kidding me? I cannot believe this, right? Now, the problem is when we're in this phase, the state of shock, we can't see clearly. 
we can't see clearly. When you're in, the, it's like when you're in the middle of something, this is, this is true of almost anything. When you're in the middle of something, it's hard to get some perspective on it, isn't it? Because you're in the middle of it. It's the old adage, can't see the forest for the trees. You've heard of that, right? It's hard to see the end of something when you're in the middle of it. And when this happens, our emotions, watch this now, our emotions begin to rule our life. We make choices and decisions based on emotions rather than data and information that we gather. That's why we need to be very, very careful about how we let certain information impact us, especially, especially when we're going through something like a pandemic. Because here's the deal. Everyone's going through these emotions. Everyone. Even those in the media. Even the talking heads through whom we're getting all of this information. And when they make a statement like, we're going through unprecedented times. And I don't know how many times I heard that, and I'm thinking, well, that's not necessarily true. Because they are the news writers. See, they're going through the same emotions that we are, and they can't see the end either because they're caught up in the middle of it. So maybe what they're saying is not necessarily true, but it's based on what has triggered their emotions. See, the truth is, listen, these are not unprecedented times. These are not unprecedented times. But the more the talking heads say that, the, more, the longer people are going to live in fear, right? And of course, you know, we got these new strains out there, right? If you study any pandemic historically, there actually have been much worse pandemics than COVID. And please, look, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not in any way downplaying or minimizing the 567,000 or more people who passed in the U.S. because of COVID. Again, I, 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 know, I know it's real. I'm, I'm still struggling some fallout. My, my lungs still aren't clear from when I had COVID. So I get it. I really do, right? What I'm telling you is this is not unprecedented. We've been through this before, and guess what? We survived. We survived. In the summer of 1854 in London, there was an outbreak of cholera, a disease caused by polluted water that infects the intestines, causing severe diarrhea and dehydration. In fact, worldwide, there have been at least three other cholera pandemics throughout history. But this outbreak in the summer of 1854 in London was of particular interest to me because of a preacher who lived at that time who had to navigate that pandemic himself as well as leading his congregation through that difficult time. At the time, this pastor was not very well known. He was very young, very green in the ministry. He would later become recognized as one of the greatest preachers of all time. In fact, if you were to Google his name, Charles Spurgeon, one of the first statements that you would see is he was called the Prince of Preachers. But early in his ministry, before he was the Prince of Preachers, he faced this cholera pandemic. Within the first few days of this pandemic in 1854, here's what this young, inexperienced preacher recorded in his diary. He said, I became weary in body and sick at heart. Notice he didn't have the disease. Physically, he was fine, but it was taking its toll on him mentally and emotionally. He says, my friends seemed falling one by one, and I felt or fancied that I was sickening like those around me. So he wasn't sick, but he felt as though he was becoming sick. Does that sound familiar? I felt that my burden was heavier than I could bear, and I was ready to sink under it. These are the words of a pastor, folks. The words of a pastor. A pastor who's beginning to experience the shock of this unexpected pandemic and the emotional and mental toll it was having on him. In fact, there was actually a stretch of time where he was doing, get this, a funeral every day. Man, as a pastor, I can't imagine having to go through something like that. One day after burying yet another member of his congregation, 
he was discouraged, defeated, he was downcast. And he was walking, as he was walking home from the funeral, he passed by a shoemaker shop. And he happened to glance up and saw these words that were taped on the window of this cobbler's shop. It's Psalm 91, verses 9 and 10. Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the most high, thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. And this single scripture reference taped on a window of a shoemaker's shop in the summer of 1854 was the instrument that God used to lead Charles Spurgeon out of his emotional shock and on the pathway to hope and healing. So for any of you who might still be dealing with the shock and emotional fallout from the COVID pandemic, or really any other didn't see it coming event that's left you kind of reeling and looking for some footing, some hope, God wants you to know that his word still has the power to guide you through the forest of the unknown and what you can't see and help bring hope and comfort. So after reading that scripture that was posted on the door to that shoemaker's business, there became a paradigm shift in Spurgeon's soul and on his emotions, how he felt about the pandemic and in his mind, how he thought about the pandemic. And this is how he later recorded this aha moment after reading Psalm 91. He said, the effect upon my heart was immediate. See that? The scriptures brought immediate comfort and assurance to Spurgeon. Look, I don't know how much longer we're going to be dealing with COVID, and I don't know how much longer that you're going to be dealing with whatever unexpected event that has sent you into shock, disbelief. But here's what I do know. I do know that we have access to immediate peace and comfort and assurance through God's word, regardless, regardless of how much longer COVID is around and regardless of how much longer you find yourself in the forest of your emotional upheaval. He said, faith appropriated the passage as her own. I felt secure, refreshed, girt with immortality. Don't you love that old English? Girt with immortality. I went on with my visitation of the dying in a calm and peaceful spirit. I felt, look, look at this. I felt no fear of evil and I suffered no harm. Amazing, huh? So we encounter something that was totally unexpected that's caught us off guard and our emotions default to a state of shock but we can't stay there because if we camp out too long in this state of emotional shock, it will progress to the next stage, which is sorrow. We experience sorrow. Even though God can't experience shock, he can experience sorrow. See, God's never caught off guard by anything, but we know from the scriptures that God can experience sorrow because sorrow almost always accompanies the loss of something or someone. And when you look at all the things that have been lost because of COVID, or because of your situation, maybe it was a loss of a job, maybe it was a loss of, like last year's graduating class, they lost their graduation, those kind of things. Maybe it was the loss of a close friend, maybe you lost a relative during COVID, right? No wonder people are wrestling with so much sorrow. The good news is Jesus understands our sorrow. He really does, he really does. The Bible tells us clearly that Jesus was a person who was, this is interesting how it phrases this, acquainted with sorrow, that's acquainted, like, here, meet sorrow. Jesus, meet sorrow, right? But 700 years before his birth, the prophet Isaiah said this about Jesus in Isaiah 53.3. He was, speaking of Jesus, speaking of the Messiah, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. God wants you to know that he understands, even as the son of God, still 
he experienced sorrow. You know, the shortest ver verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five, was written to describe Jesus' emotion during a time of extreme sadness and sorrow in his life when his close friend Lazarus passed away. It says when he came to Lazarus' grave, it says that Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible describes that deep emotion that Jesus felt. Jesus wept because he lost something. He lost someone, a dear close friend. But that's not a bad thing, that grieving process. In fact, it's actually healthy to grieve. It's okay to cry. It's okay to grieve. What's not okay, what's not okay is when we become overwhelmed by sorrow. That's exactly what your adversary, the devil, wants you to do. He, he wants to drown you in a sea of sorrow. He wants to, to, to take that, that defense mechanism of sorrow and use it against you. That's why the psalmist tells us in Psalm 61, verses 1 and 2, Hear my cry, O God. Attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I will cry to you. Here it is. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Those of you who might be feeling overwhelmed, I need to let you know that if you don't deal with that, and I, and I mean pretty quickly, your emotions will cause you to drift to the third stage. And I don't want you going there, and you don't want to go there. Because after shock and then sorrow, our next step should be going to that rock, that, that sure footing, right, that we can anchor our life to, anchor our faith to in the midst of any trial or storm or circumstance. Not only can we find safety and refuge at this rock, we have to. Listen, we have to find safety and refuge there because if we don't, we'll drift to this third stage, which is struggling. We go into shock. We experience sorrow. Then we begin to struggle. Then we begin to struggle. Now, here's where many people begin to default to their coping mechanisms. And, and we all do this. We all do this. We all have our way of dealing with emotional upheaval. Some people escape by living in denial, which not only doesn't accomplish anything, it actually digs you a deeper hole to climb into. Some people self-medicate with alcohol and drugs. Some people escape by shopping. Some cope by camping out in front of the TV and binge-watching a Netflix series. You see, the thing is, in each of these, we usually end up alone. We usually end up alone. And when it's just us, when it's just us, we end up thinking and pondering our situation and circumstance. And this is what psychologists call ruminating, right? It's called ruminating, where we just sit and think and ponder and dwell on our present situation. The problem is when we're ruminating, we're probably not going to come up with the best answer for our situation because we're so defeated, we're just looking at the negative, all the negative things about it, right? In fact, when you're sorrowful and experiencing emotional disruption, you are your own worst counselor. When you're in the midst of an emotional shock and sorrow, you are in no position to give yourself advice. But if it's any consolation, we've got some pretty good company. Even some of the great prophets in the Old Testament struggled with these stages of emotion as well. Listen to what Jeremiah said once. The same Jeremiah who prophesied that God had big plans for us. Remember that one, Jeremiah 29.11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That same guy also prophesied this in Jeremiah 20, 17 and 18. Oh, that I had died within my mother's womb, that it had been my grave, and this is the classic I wish I'd never been born argument. Why was I ever born? For my life has been but trouble and sorrow and shame. No, 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 that's false, Jeremiah. That's false. That's your emotions speaking, Jeremiah. None of that is true. You're just ruminating and responding out of shock and sorrow of your circumstances. See, even Jesus wasn't above this. Hanging on the cross, remember? He said, my God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? 
Why have you for in other words, what gives, Father? What gives here? Why, why am I going through this? The thing is, had God forsaken him? No. No. And neither will he forsake you. Rumination is the focused attention on the symptoms of your distress as opposed to the solution. And the longer, listen, the longer we ruminate, the more we look for someone or something to blame. And we'll end up doing one of two things. We'll blame someone else or we'll try to justify ourselves in some way. Why we drank that, why we ate that, why we snorted that, why we dated that, why we spent that. So real quick, if you're struggling emotionally for whatever reason, I want to show you how to take care of yourself to stay fit emotionally moving forward in our new normal. To do this, I want us to look at a metaphor or a parable that Jesus used one time. It's found in Matthew 7. And keep in mind, Jesus made these comments at the end of his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, verse 24, he says, These words, talking about the sermon that he had just preached, I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life, homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words, words to build a life on. So at this point, Jesus uses a construction metaphor about building a house. And then verse 25, if you work these words into your life, you're like a smart carpenter who built his house on solid rock. There's that word again. Rain poured down, the pandemic hit. You got the call from the doctor's office, whatever. The river flooded, you lost your job. A tornado hit, perhaps you lost a loved one. But even then, but nothing moved that house. It was fixed to the rock. So using this metaphor Jesus used here, I want us to see how we can build our house, our emotions, on a solid foundation that will withstand any storm, any shock of an unexpected or unforeseen situation that might otherwise set us back and send us on an emotional downward spiral of sorrow and struggling. Every person's emotions are actually built very similar to how a house is built. The very first step in building a house is the foundation. Now, foundations aren't glamorous, right? They're not fun. They're not even pretty or fun to look at. In fact, after it's all said and done, lots of times you don't even see the foundation. But they're, they're so important, aren't they? Then after setting the foundation, the carpenters come in and begin framing the house, putting up the two-bys and walls, etc., and that stage is kind of ugly, too, because all you can see is a bunch of the dirt left from the foundation they dug and a bunch of two-bys propping up these, these, you know, makeshift walls and so forth. But still, there's nothing pretty or glamorous about that house. You know, because of, because of where we live, uh, I drive up and down Stafford Terrace at least eight to ten times a day, sometimes more, which means I've been able to keep tabs on Scott and Lisa McDaniel's new house construction. Next to Scott, I probably know more about the progress of that construction than anyone. And I got to tell you, it's starting to look better now than it used to. But I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, I don't know how long I went where, it's like, when are they going to start building the house? They were just building the foundation. Why are they taking so stinking long on the foundation? Because it is so important. If the foundation isn't right, then it's, it's, not, it's all for naught. It's not going to last. It's not going to last. Now, you know, at, at, at some point in time, Lisa told us kind of the floor plan, you know, at, at our growth group one time, kind of what it was going to look like. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, we get the walls up, the sheetrock painted, landscaped and all that. I'm sure it's going to be beautiful. But I'm sorry, right now, that thing is butt ugly. <laughs> so I'm going to use this same metaphor 
to show us how we can build a rock-solid emotional life. Taking care of our soul is not unlike building a house. In this regard, in both instances, you have to start with the foundation. And the foundation of your life, of my life, of everyone's life, clinical psychologists will tell you this. Our foundation is built on, and here's the word that we saw in the definition of emotion earlier, relationships and connectedness. See that? That's not me. That's not a preacher. That is a clinical psychologist that will tell you that. The exact things that were taken from us over this past year, and, you know, thank God some of the guidelines regarding these things have been loosened in some places, including Franklin County. But, But think about that phrase that has become such a common part of our daily conversation, social distancing. Social distancing, Frankly, that's not a very good way to describe what the end game is or was because the end game was to try and keep people six feet of space between you and the next person, right, when you're out in public. And I get that. I get that. I understand that. In order to flatten the curve, we needed to keep a safe distance between us and others. What I don't get is why they use the term social distancing. See, keeping socially distanced does nothing to flatten the curve. Absolutely nothing to flatten curve of any virus. Physically, yes. Socially, no. So don't say social distancing. Say physical distancing, right? Because your life is built on and around your relationships and your connectedness. If you're struggling emotionally right now, one thing I know that will help you is if you start doing these two things, connecting with God and connecting with God's people. I'm serious. Do those two things and it will make a difference. This is non-negotiable. This is not, you you can't even build the rest of the house until you get this established in your life. You will always be an emotional wreck if you're not intentional about doing this. A poor foundation will adversely affect everything else that you do. About a year and a half ago, Sue and I decided to sell our house. I don't know why. There was no place to move to, but, you know. So we kind of got it fixed up a little bit, called Sarah, and we listed it, and, uh, during that process, you know, we, we wanted to downsize, not so much uh, square footage, but yard-wise, you know, because I, I, I mow quite a bit there. So, so anyway, so we listed our house, and then uh, we actually, there was a place in town that we thought would be perfect. Square footage, it would have been big enough to, to accommodate our, our uh, what are we at now, 24? Whenever we have a family get-together with 12 grandkids and all of our kids and in-laws, daughters and son-in-law, we got like 24 of us. So, so, you know, we wanted a house that was still big enough where we could, you know, have, you know, birthdays and celebrations and so forth. So we went to look at one in town, and it was like, man, it fit the bill perfect. It even had a big yard, not as much, you know, I, I, I could handle that much mowing, you know. And, uh, but here's the deal. As we were walking through the house, at almost every doorway, seriously, at almost every doorway, somewhere around the jam, there was cracks going up. Seriously, almost every doorway, it was like that. So it's like, and then we go out into the garage, and then we saw where there had been uh, some foundation repair at some point in time, at least once, perhaps even more. And, uh, and it was just one of those things where as much as we wanted that to be the house, because there was nothing on there. You guys know, that, I mean, the real estate market's crazy right now. There was nothing in town. This would have this been it. I mean, this would have been so perfect for us. But we just couldn't get past those cracks and that, all the work that had been done, right? How do we prevent these cracks? How do we prevent these cracks? By the way, we ended up taking our house off the market staying where we're at, kind of did some things to create more space, you know, so it's all good. But how, how, how do we prevent these cracks? By beginning each day, spending some time with God in worship, reading his word and in prayer. I always suggest 15 minutes. 
I always suggest about 15 minutes. And come on, in this day and age, that's doable for everyone, right? That's doable. This, this is easy peasy. You know, worship, worship. You know, just, just spend five minutes, just, you know, uh, you know get, get your morning coffee. If you're a coffee drinker, get your morning coffee. You know, get your smartphone or whatever device and just open up to maybe uh, last Sunday's service and sing along with Lauren and Sam and April in our, in our worship team. Just, 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 spend, just spend like, you know, five minutes in worship, all right? And then after you spend five minutes in worship, just spend a few minutes reading the word. If you don't have the YouVersion Bible app, download it. You know, maybe, maybe connect with someone else and do a Bible reading plan together to kind of hold you accountable. Right? And then after five minutes of worship and then five minutes of reading the word, just five minutes hanging out with God. You know, just, you know, telling him, hey, God, this is what I have need of today. Right? Tell him what's on your mind. Just tell him what's on your mind. And if you'll make this a habit, I'm telling you, it's a game changer. So, so, so why in the morning, Pastor? I'll tell you why, because all's well that starts well. It's not all's well that ends well. No, no, no. In this case, it's all's well that starts well. Start each day by, by getting your head screwed on straight. And here's the promise. If we'll do this, the Apostle Paul tells us what God promises in return. In Philippians 4.8, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. You know, I looked that phrase up in the Greek, think about what's such things. You know what it means? It means get your head screwed on straight. Not really, but it should. That's the idea there. Verse 9, Philippians 4, 9. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of, here it is, peace will be with you. How many of you could use some peace in your life right now? Yeah, absolutely. So emotional well-being begins by making sure our foundation is set by connecting with God and connecting with God's people on a daily basis. Then we're ready to start framing the house, the structure. And our structure is built around these two things, purpose and obedience. See, people who don't recognize or know what their purpose is, they're going to struggle emotionally. It's been said that the two most important days in our life are the day that we were born and the day we found out why. Sadly, many people have lost sight of their purpose. Some of that might be due to COVID or how it affected your job or maybe a loved one's job, how it affected your education. But please understand, your calling isn't tied to your compensation, right? Again, secular psychologists have weighed in on this, and, and, and this is ba- they basically said that if we want to be emotionally healthy, we need to discover our purpose and then do it. Don't just find out what it is. You've got to do it. Here's how Solomon put it. He said, where there is no vision, purpose, the people perish. See, people with no purpose, the, the, the ones who self-medicate and binge Netflix, they're the ones that are going to have issues. Another translation puts it this way. Where there is no revelation or purpose, people cast off restraint. If you don't have a revelation of what God's doing in your life, then you'll cast off restraint, which is the same thing as saying, I don't care. I don't care anymore. And that's not a good place to be emotionally when you don't care anymore. So our emotional framework, our structure is built first around recognizing our purpose and then doing it or obedience. The biggest problem with with disobedience, okay, is how it causes us to live our lives in a very unstable way. We often blame it on the storm. See, we we, we blame it on on the storm itself. But the storm has, we, we can't blame the storm. You understand, right? Both houses went through the storm. Read the parable closely. 
Both houses went through the storm, right? It's the foundation that made the difference. So don't blame God when you disobey him and you become an emotional wreck, okay? I, that's not said lovelessly. Listen to your pastor. I'm just, I'm just telling you, this is how it is. This is how it is. This isn't about, listen, this isn't about God knocking you down anytime you disobey or slip up. This is simply about the results that your behavior produces. So, for example, if you're a three-pack-a-day smoker, I'm going to tell you, there's 100% chance that you're going to face some serious health issues right? and maybe even cancer. So don't blame the doctor when it happens. Many people think that this, this is how God relates to us, but it's not. God hasn't given us just this list of, of, of arbitrary rules to live by. The precepts and principles of Scripture are given to us for a purpose, and it's as simple as this. When we live according to the precepts, we get one result. When we defy the precepts and principles, we get another result, the, an opposite result. So there is a sense, and I want you to follow me closely here, there's a sense in which God doesn't punish disobedience, but rather disobedience brings about its own punishment. That's why Solomon said this in Proverbs 5.22, an evil man is held captive by his own sins. They are ropes that catch and hold him. If you eat pizza and ice cream and donuts every day, God doesn't arbitrarily punish you by giving you clogged arteries. Right? No, defying the principles of good health brings about its own result or its own punishment. So when Jesus says that when a person builds their house on the sand and the wind and the rain bring it crashing to the ground, this isn't result, the result of some arbitrary third-party punishment. He's saying this is what happens if you don't get the foundation right. This is what's going to happen if you build your life on the sand. So the foundation of our emotional well-being is built on our intentional daily connection with God and God's people. The structure of our emotional well-being is built on our purpose and obedience to do what God's called us to do. In other words, you need to do, and, and tell me if you've heard this before, you need to discover your purpose and make a difference. Have you heard those statements before? Find your purpose and make a difference. Now that we have our emotional foundation built through connecting with God and God's people and then the framework put up through recognizing our purpose and being obedient to pursue that purpose, now we're ready to start beautifying our emotional house, start putting up the sheetrock, painting, putting the flooring down, landscaping, all that stuff. So how do we make our emotions beautiful? Through these two things, trust and self-control. Trust, you surrender what you can't control. Surrender what you can't control. And then self-control, doing only those things that you can control. Huge difference there. You know, thinking back over my 45 plus years of walking with Jesus, the most peaceful and confident people that I've ever met are those who have learned the secret of getting a handle on these two things, on these two things. It's not that they're exempt from the unexpected speed bumps of life. They, they, they just take the posture of, well, you know, this sucks, but I'm going to continue to trust God. I'm going to continue to trust God because the worst thing that can happen to me is I get to meet Jesus. And you know, that is so easy to say on this side, isn't it? But man, when, when, when Paul said it, man, you, you, you could tell the conviction. He meant it. And somehow, some way, we need to get to that point. We need to get to that point. Don't let the unexpected speed bumps of life derail you. I've seen too many, way too many Christians do this, and they succumb to what psychologists call learned helplessness. Learned helplessness is when you get beat up and knocked down so many times that you just give up anytime a storm comes. That's what you default to. Learned helplessness. 
You just give up. Don't do that. The only thing that we should give up is what we can't control. I give up what I can't control, but I dive into what I can control. Okay? Author, clinical psychologist, and life coach, Dr. Henry Cloud, made this suggestion. This is great. He made this suggestion for those times when we feel like we're losing control. He said, make a list of all those things that you can't control. Go ahead. Write them down. Right? You know, we can't control this virus. We can't control the economy. You know, whatever else that you can't control. Name it and write it down. Then go get a timer, get your watch or whatever, your phone, and set your timer for 10 minutes and read over that list and just worry yourself to death. That's what he said. Just go ahead and worry yourself sick. Why? Because then you might realize there's nothing you can do about it. There's really nothing you can do about it. Then just open your hands and give these things to God. Here's Solomon's version of Dr. Cloud's advice in Proverbs 3, 5. And you've probably heard this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Verse 6, in all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. I want to close by uh, reading a prayer. It's a prayer that was written back in 1932 by a theologian named Reinhold Niebuhr. The prayer was adopted and popularized by AA and other 12-step programs, including the faith-based Celebrate Recovery program that we're going to be launching here at Family Church a week from Thursday. And by the way, we do have some cards back there at the Next Step desk if you want, if you want more information about that. But the, the, this prayer has been adopted by uh, the Celebrate Recovery program as well. And many of you have probably heard it before, but I think it's an appropriate way to kind of tie a bow on this third step of moving forward in our new normal of emotional health. And here's what it says. God, give me grace to accept with serenity the things that I cannot, that cannot be changed, courage to change the things which should be changed, and the wisdom to know the difference. See that? Change what you can change. Don't worry about what you can't change. You see that? Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace. See, Paul tells us that in Romans 5, where he talks about how suffering actually produces character in us, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint. It continues. Taking as Jesus did, the sinful world as it is. See that? We don't have to like it. In fact, you live long enough, there's going to be plenty of times you're not going to like this world, right? But complaining about it, <laughs> that only wrecks you emotionally. So meet those, meet those things head on that you can change and don't worry about the rest. So take this world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life. And don't tell me if I had more faith, I'd be more than just reasonably happy. No, no, no. Let's be honest here. You know this. We live in a very broken and messed up world, don't we? Right? You know that. So don't lie to yourself. The best that we can hope for in this life is to be reasonably happy. Right? But reasonably, reasonably happy with God in this life sets the table for the final sentence of the prayer and supremely happy with you forever in the next life. Amen. Truth is, if you're putting your hope in finding supreme happiness in this life, I'm sorry, you're setting yourself up for disappointment and emotional defeat because God never intended for life on this fallen, broken planet to be heaven. Never intended that. The only place where there'll be no more crying, no more tears, no more struggles is heaven. And I'm telling you folks, heaven ain't here, but you know that. 
I want to pray for you, but before I do, I need to ask you a question. Have you ever surrendered your life fully to the Lord? See, that's really what Christianity is, is all about. It's surrendering control of your life to Jesus. Paul tells us in Romans 10 that if, if we'll make Jesus Lord of our life, if we'll just give him control, then we'll be saved. Even Jesus, when, when he gave us the model prayer, the, the prayer template for how to pray, Jesus said, part of every prayer that we pray should include this statement, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In other words, God, your deal over my deal. Every prayer should include that statement at some point. God, I, I want your deal over my, but, and, and, but help me to live my life that way. It's easy to say that, but man, it's hard to live out. But be honest about that. He knows, but part of every prayer should include that statement. God, I want your deal over my deal and help me to live my life that way. Paul continued on. He says, it's with our heart that we believe and are justified, but it's with our mouth that we confess and are saved. So I want us to confess right now. If that's you, it would be my honor to lead you in this simple prayer. Just say, Jesus, I recognize now that I need you. Forgive me for living my life without you, doing, doing my deal over your deal. Today, right now, I want to change the way I'm living my life. I want your deal over my deal, God. I want you to come and live inside of me. Save me, change me. Give me your Holy Spirit to help guide and direct me and empower me to do what you've called me to do. I want to do your will each and every day. I believe that you are the son of God, that you died for me, that you rose from the dead for me as well. And right now I put my faith in you and give you my life. In Jesus' name, amen.